Hi, it's David Ward from the Rock Therapy Show on Musicians on the Record. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you're here today. If you're back with us today, welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. I know you're busy. I know you got a life. There's a million, a bazillion podcasts out there. So for you to land here and listen, really appreciate it. If you love hearing about musician stories, them overcoming challenges and what they did to do that, whether it's personal growth and recovery, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and join us because that's what we bring you every week. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world, and you can connect with us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. And please let us know who's your favorite musician, and whose story you'd love to hear. Also, if you want to see these interviews, there's video too. You can watch all of them on our YouTube channel and our website at musiciansontherecord.com. Thanks again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward, and another episode of The Rock Therapy Show. Uh, it's very cool. Conversations about music and mental health, motivation, and mindset. I'm your host, David Ward, a licensed psychotherapist and unlicensed drummer. Just drumming without a license these days, Bob. And on the show today, very excited, a special guest, uh, a friend of mine and very talented composer, multi-instrumentalist, arranger, producer, albums. We're going to be talking about these albums here and the CDs he's got. Robert Myers is with us. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Thank you very much. What do you prefer, Robert, Bob? What do you like? Yeah, if you know a Bob is a jerk, call me Robert. <laughs> but it's an either or, really. And and I was curious, this other, and I, I don't know if this is your stage name, real name, and you tell me how to pronounce it, the middle, but but your performer name. Yes, it's uh, Elos. Alos. And it was given to me by Pirvalai tonight at Khan. And it's and it's a mythological character. He shows up in the Odysseus um, and has free floating island out there off the coast of Italy someplace. But yeah, it's so Robert Alos Myers. I was given the name and I didn't know what to do with it for a long time and I just replaced it uh it replaced stanley essentially okay you claimed it then it <laughs> i claimed like. it it was given to me and i and i made use of it very cool now the only the one of the things that i remember about uh the odyssey is the uh what is it the island with the leaves and everybody goes to sleep what, what, oh i'm not all? sure which island that would have been yeah, but Odysseus gets stranded on this island with the with the women and all of his men, and they eat these leaves or something they're chomping on, and they yeah, all yeah. I don't remember sort that. Sort of get that stoned episode. and lazy. Okay, the, the, this is the one where, and it might have been. I mean, he, they land, they sort of crash land on uh, Elus's island, and he has six sons and six daughters, and they feast and they have a good time, and then. Uh, Elus wraps up the contrary winds into a bag hmm. and sends them all on their way home. Interesting. But as uh, the merry men were wont to do, they wanted to share all the gold. They figured there must certainly be something, some treasure in right. that bag. So uh, uh, Elus was, I mean, um, sorry, uh, Odysseus was taking a nap. The crew got in, loosened the bag, and then they were off to their next adventure because all the contrary winds were then loosed. So. <laughs> 
I love it. Commentary on the Odyssey. Start reading that while you're watching the podcast <laughs> as well. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about mental health issues today. For those who don't know you, though, Bob, let's start sure. with maybe just the the uh, a brief synopsis of your music. We're going to talk more about it, but a brief synopsis of your music story. How did you get all, My into all this? My music story. Jeez, it probably really took off when... Uh, when I was in junior high school, and there was an instrument called the bassoon coming, and they wanted to know if anybody wanted to play it. And uh, I always wanted to play the bass clarinet, but somebody already had it, so I raised my hand and said, I'll play the bassoon. Three months later, they let me out of a little room where I spent by myself trying to teach the thing how to talk, and then I was kind of off to then a second career. So it was started with the clarinet, then the bassoon, and then it just all extrapolated from there. Wow. So I went to college and paid for it by being a bassoon player. But I was also a drum major. I'd done that in high school. So I went to two colleges, uh, University of San, San Diego State University for four years. And I had a good two years left. Junior transferred to the University of Hawaii, where I ultimately had switched from music education to ethnomusicology. And... That's where really the where the compositional stuff started. Got it. Got it. Yeah, because you're not just a, a bassoon player or a dr- you're you're like one of these smart musician guys who can read and compose and all of this stuff. So, are you originally from California? Um, I was born in Peoria, Illinois. All the relatives are from Southern Illinois. I lived in Ohio until from like six months through fourteen. San Diego, fourteen to twenty-two. And then went to Hawaii at 22 and stayed till 44. Wow. And, and, and then came here yeah. to Maine. And besides the obvious of like California to Hawaii, what was the, the pull, the attraction to Hawaii? Uh, surf. surf. It was surfing. Uh-huh. <laughs> so were you into the surf music as well at that time? The Beach Boys? Well, and- you know, I was, I was listening to it. You know, I certainly knew where Disneyland and who the Beach Boys, you know, knew where Disneyland was and who the Beach Boys were. And I feel like, you know, that, I mean, maybe things would have came out similar, but that move to California at the age of 14, I seems pretty critical. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, when you found music, what was the dream that started forming of what you wanted to do with it? I don't know. So how, so give me some context. Found music. Okay, well, so bassoon, but also drum major. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. it was interesting. Now, I was very fascinated in uh, in undergraduate degree with, with ethnomusicology, exposure to the world musics, that the shaman literally became uh, something I was quite interested in. Mm-hmm. So the keepers of the musical traditions in, in uh, third world and aboriginal cultures, and sort of figured that the the modern context of the shaman was certainly beginning to come around. This was when uh, there were very, uh, Mahavishnu was there, uh, Carlos Santana be, took uh, was following Sri Chimnoy. There's a lot of spirituality and popular music started taking off. And, and I think that that certainly had a, a, a drive for me as well. Let's talk about that, because that's something we could probably riff on quite a long time. I was asking you before we started, what came first, the music or the, right. the therapy or spirituality? And you mentioned the spirituality. So, yeah, how, how I mean, I, so I just turned 66. So that puts me kind of like in the middle tail of the baby boomers. So in 60, 1968, I guess the summer of love, I was a sophomore in high school. 
Um, early 70s, I'm looking for a spiritual teacher. Yeah. And I had uh, read Autobiography of a Yogi, like so many of us did, at a crucial time. And, and then thereupon realized that a surf break that I knew as Swamis actually had the Encinitas retreat above it and started becoming acquainted with, with that work. Um, and then did that work through uh, the move to Hawaii and found a small group and played, uh, played harmonium and sung the Gothis for, for self-realization fellowship meetings. And that was really my first kind of musician for the, for the, the band, for the guru, so to speak. And then uh, when it came time to pledge allegiance to the guru, I figured I'd look for a live one in lieu of one that had passed. Yeah. And I started going to what we used to call Sufi dancing. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so there was a, a group in Honolulu, and I went as a bystander once, and then the second time I went, I was in the inner circle playing flute, and then started playing percussion, and that was a practice for about 10, 15 years. Wow, it was a long time. Yeah. What was it that called you to that music? Um, well... I was studying Indian music, actually, okay. in, in uh, college, and had a teacher who had studied with Nikhil Banerjee and was very interested in Hindustan music. And turns out that Pirvalite Anayat Khan's teacher, Hazrat Anayat Khan, was a court musician in the Hindustan tradition of North India who came to the West in the, in the early 1900s. Wow. And so some of that just caught you. Yeah, and, and, and synchronously, there were little little sayings by Hazrat Anayat Khan talking about spirituality and music were showing up in Waguru Chus and candy bars and the most unlikely places. And so I just kind of followed the breadcrumbs. In candy bars? Yeah, there was little Waguru Chus. They're little rectangular oblong things. They had like little sayings on the backs of them, not unlike teas that we'll get these days yeah, with little yeah. things. Yeah. The guru chews. I, I missed yeah. that, but I love that. That's very, that's like uh, opening up a, a thing of bubble gum and, and well, having, it, the... I know it's true. <laughs> I mean, I haven't had, I haven't thought about that for a long time, but yeah. so, you know, I hear about <clears throat> other folks with some of the gurus, you know, Pete Townsend, even with Baba Mayer and then, oh, yeah. and then Krishna Das with, yep. with his, did you ever think of heading to India? And well, the truth, uh, I did actually. I was I was filling out grants to go to uh, um, uh, north of north uh, north of New Delhi, but probably the best thing that that never happened was I didn't get that grant, okay. so I didn't go up into the highlands of the of the Himalayas and 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 actually meet anybody. And I so I've I've yet to go to India, though it's kind of still on my bucket list. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was very interested in, in I mean, at, at a juncture when I went to Hawaii, I had plans to either go to, uh, I had a good two years left of school. I was going to go to Ali Akbar College School in San Francisco, where I thought and visited a few times, thought I might study sitar, and, and, um, and or I would go for a long surf adventure into Baja, California, or I would go to New Zealand and finish undergraduate school. But I had sent audition tapes to uh, the University of Hawaii and showing them that I uh, was a drum major and a bassoonist, and what could they do to help me finance my last two years of school. So they they invited me on down, and I kind of did all those things there in, in Hawaii. I love it. Say more about your, your drumming as well, drum major. What? Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was in marching bands longer than anybody should ever be. <laughs> and. 
And um, and at one point I became, so in our marching band culture in Southern California, there was one drum major that would kind of be the ring, the main ringmaster. So you'd go down, down the middle of the, of the road during parades, or you'd like strategically place yourself for halftime shows. And I did that. I did marching bands through high school. And then my senior year was a drum major. And then when I started in San Diego State, they, the, the, the marching band was actually on strike. But then my second, third, and fourth years, I was drum major at San Diego State. And then I did two more years at the University of Hawaii. So if it was an end, if it was a, uh, I would have aged out actually. I would too much best. You know, if you go more than four years, they make you like graduate or go away. <laughs> right. But as a as a six year senior, I just kind of kept it going and yeah. helped finance school. The the drum marching strike. What was the strike about? Well, I there's a, a, a little known fact I think that that big schools with marching bands, everybody in the marching band gets deferred tuition. Okay. Yeah. And so if you got a kid who can play the glockenspiel, yeah. then make sure they don't put the stuff away because you could okay. save yourself a lot of cash on school. I didn't know that. So I think that they were revisiting that, if I recall. And uh, and so the marching band just decided that they'd go away. And so after a year without a marching band, San Diego State University decided they'd, they'd have them back. Got it. Yeah. So good good deal right there. <laughs> the, you started unionizing almost. Of Prepare, like, yes. And yeah. seemingly. Yeah. Yeah. What year around was this? Uh, the early 70s. Early so I graduated high school in 71, hmm. 72. So I took up drum major again in 70, uh, 19, the fall of 72, actually. Yeah. What was happening with, I mean, obviously that was a pretty heady and heavy time. Vietnam was going on. Vietnam was going on. Um, I was filing conscientious objector. Okay. I got a good uh, ping pong ball, and so I didn't have to do that. Okay. Um I was living at the beach. I was surfing. I was going to, to, to the number one party school in the nation and realizing that I did not like very much beer at any one time. Uh, <laughs> you know, important things to figure out yes. early in life. Yeah, right. Yeah. And how are the folks? How are the folks uh, feeling about, yeah, Bob, go ahead, go to college and study drums and bassoon? What were they, how well, are they all feeling about that, it? That, that's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm the first generation did not experience the plow in my family and they didn't have a lot of money and my friends and contemporaries were uh going to esteemed colleges after their junior year and that was about the time my parents told me that they didn't have any money to help me get to college so i ended up going to college to this at the san Diego state was about five miles from my parents house wow okay but you knew you wanted to go Yes, I was going to college. Yeah. I, there was not a question of that. And and say more about that of like what the drive for that was versus like no, I'm going to surf. Everybody I knew was going to college, and actually, in college, ended up being a way to financing surfing. Ultimately, <laughs> how so? <laughs> well, yeah. So the, the the band director, I think his name was Rick, Dick Lum, uh, met me met me at the airport, and. Um, so I and and so I didn't have any instruments on me. I had a flute actually, okay. and so the school had a bassoon. They were pretty pricey instruments, but I did have a surfboard under each arm. <laughs> <laughs> you had priorities. I had priorities. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so you you head to Hawaii. Where did music and spirituality take you? Well, I think it just all amplified. I just never said no to anything. Apparently, I mean, as I'm looking at it, so I was looking for. 
uh, a spiritual affiliation and end up playing music in that spiritual container. Um, I had been exposed to world musics through eth- through the degree work in ethnomusicology, and and pretty much used that as an initiation into the spiritual supermarket, mm. of which it, it, I don't know if people realize. I well, so I lived on Oahu, which is it's one of the most um, mature spiritual environments I've I could ever imagine. Right? Now it's been going on for a very long time. Um, of course, the missionaries aren't thought very fondly of because they went and altered the culture entirely. Sure. But uh, on Oahu, there's missionaries from all kinds of places. Um, and so the, there's Shinto temples, Buddhist temples, um, hmm. every flavor of Christian temples. Um, and, and then a, a lot of sort of the, the New Agey hippie phenom was there as well. So the Tibetans had a house, uh, the Sufis had a house. Um, various different organizations had houses. So these are back in the days when I think the Divine Light Mission would have houses, the sort of the resurrection of the phenom of the Konka or the spiritual ashram was was in full bloom in the in the latter 60s, early 70s in Hawaii. Wow. And I think there's still these places where you can go and, and access alternative religious phenomena. I mean, I, I hesitate to call it that, but... Where do you think this drive came from for you as far as exploring this spirituality? Did you grow up a certain religion or spirituality? Or? Well, I grew up in the in the tradition of, of Bible thumping fundamentalist religion, okay. and my mom was uh, was was dragging us from church to church. If, if the if the if the pastor gave a bad sermon, we were looking for a new church. You were out, and uh, and I just, maybe that germ was in there, but you know the the. It's interesting. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and my daughter was asking me if I'm Christian. I said, "Yes, I am Christian." She goes, well, "What about all that other stuff you talk about?" Well, I'm also those as well, <laughs> you know. So. so universalist, maybe. Yes, if that it, would work. It's kind of a limiting term, even, yeah. but but maybe close enough. Right? Well, and I, where I've landed is, you know, it's it's many cups, the same juice. Right. Yeah. So wherever the juice is, I'm 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 pretty close, and and with a cup. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Well said, right? Um, so, but this wasn't like, you know, with the Beatles uh, and their spiritual pil- pilgrimage to mm. to uh, India. It wasn't like you were uh, forming the dream of I want to be the next Beatles. No, you had something different in mind for your music. Yeah, there was. Um, I mean, well, I there was a stairwell at the at uh, at the University of Hawaii, and I started doing a. Uh, and there were tiny little tape recorders, and and what I would do is I would play in the stairwell and uh, and record, and then I would have another tape recorder, and I would play the tape, and then play over the tape. And that was my earliest yeah. recorded music, nice. was and very much influenced by Paul Horn's uh, Taj Mahal, oh, wow. the golden throated, golden fluted yeah. fellow. Uh, did he pass away recently? Paul Horn, you would know better than I. Um, but yeah, that was very much an inspiration for me. It was Paul Horn's Taj Mahal. Okay. And flute, you were playing. Yes, and I was playing flute. Yeah. When did you pick that up? Well, uh, I picked up the flute in Woodwind's, Woodwind's classes in, uh, in music education at the San Diego State University. And, it, and I jokingly say, but it's true, it's the last instrument I picked up. And, and I tried to sort of hold the banner for the cause of bassoon for a while 
that didn't really make a lot of sense. And so, so I, so I threw a flute in a backpack and, and sort of never looked back. Wow. And, and we'll put up a, if we can find one, I'm sure there's one, but t- describe the bassoon to me. I'm, I'm blanking. On oh, this the bassoon right. is, it looks like a bedpost. It's grandfather and the, uh, and, and Peter and the wolf. And, um, and so it's certainly a, a more orchestral instrument than anything else. Yeah. Every now and then it'll it'll come out as a as a as a color instrument for some jazz work, and a couple of pop tunes uh, have the bassoon in it. But it's pretty much if you don't go into the orchestra, you're not seeing too many bassoons. Right. Right. So, and and were you studying classical or jazz before the world music came into came into play? Um, I, I would suggest that the, the bands that I were in, that I was in, in high school and college were very, uh, um, very contemporary woodwind ensembles. Mm. And so a lot of multi, uh, rhythmic pieces, we used to say that the ink was seldom dry on the pieces that we would play. Um, and that really exposed me to, a a kind of music making that I, you know, it was, it's just, it was very avant-garde contemporary music, um, and then, of course, and bassoon was what I was playing. Right. Yeah. How do you feel like spirituality has informed your playing then, your development, even playing now? Well, at, at, at a certain point, it was about me as a composer making my own music. And this is probably the fork in the road that I took both forks. Okay. One of them is my own music making that was very much would follow a sound or an idea or compositionally develop. And it was, it was stuff that I was doing as an artist. But then there was my involvement in spiritual music where I'm really attending to the guru or the, or the kirtanwala and, and supporting that, those musical efforts as, as a band member. And current band now? Current band, I, I still do the two things. You know, there's the, the uh, my own music making and then there's, and I do uh, what I call my fife and drum act for for Kirtan, and I so I'll play for Devadash Shabalananda. I play for um, there's uh, uh, Satya Fresh. I play for uh, a handful of of Kirtan Wallace here in New England, and then I'll play every other week or so. Go to Boston once or twice a month and play. It's very much what the what Krishna Das. Everybody knows who he is, but there is there's a lot of Kirtan in New England and yep. all of America at this point. Right. Say more about that for folks who don't know what Kirtan, Kirtanwala is. Describe yeah, that, so please. Kir- Kirtan is, is, comes out of the Bhakti tradition of Hinduism, where it's, it's about love. And, and what is in the Kirtanwala will, will chant uh, chants that are in Sanskrit, and then they'll be chanted back. So it's sort of a cantor tradition. So, and the, the lead singer, the lead walla, is typically on, uh, will play harmonium, and then there's percussionists and flute players or violinists, and the, the, the banda, so to speak, is around the walla. And, and it's um, a call and response sort of thing. It's pretty powerful stuff, right? It's, it's quite powerful, yeah. yes. Yeah. When did the albums start to come into play? When did you say, okay, and, and there weren't home recording studios back in 68, right? So it's, or 71 or 75. It's, well, there, the, the, actually there were. I mean, really? there, was a, there was a fellow I met uh, during my tenure in the, in the uh, Hallelujah Symphony, Bob Kindler. And he had a home studio, actually, okay. a couple of uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders. And... 
and, and invited and introduced me to uh, the folks at Global Pacific Records. And so I had my first two recordings out through them. Um, both of those, one was more of a DIY album. I signed with Global Pacific, redid that, uh, specifically side two of that, a cut called On Angels Becoming Human, a long play album. And it was just when Synthesis was linking up, which is so that it was uh, linking up to say that the, the, the machines could talk to one another through through click tracks and those sorts of things. Yes. And so my second album and the second half of my first album were studio out studio works uh, uh, created using a you know synthesizers in a full on recording studio multi-track. And are you playing the synthesizer as well? Yep, yep. Yeah, so you're again multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist. We didn't we didn't hit that. When did you start playing Keyboards or synthesizers? Oh, well, I got my first synthesizer. It was a Roland 100-101 uh, module. I think I got it in 1979 and and literally sat it in the closet and explored all kinds of things. I uh, used uh, I, what we called an Echoplex. So yes, it was, it was popularized this. by Jimi Hendrix. Yes. And, uh, and anybody who... Could get their hands on one, just love the idea. Sort of, you instantly you're in a you're in a field of music and a wall of sound versus any one sound, and then multi-tracking and and boy, that, that's that's been going on forever. I mean, my first two albums to figure out how to what to do with these machines were, I think it was Vangelis's China and Giorgio Marauder had an album out at that point, and he was the fellow who did all the accompanying for Donna Summer. Oh, okay. So I figured I, you know, had a, I had a, a little synthesizer, but what were the possibilities? And, right. right. Tell me about your first record contract or, you know, signing oh, with that back then. What was that like? Yeah, it was, that was all pretty organic. There was this, uh, a, a collection of new age artists. And I think we were competing with, with Wyndham Hill at the time. Uh, we, we, there was artists in Hawaii and then beyond. And then the record company actually moved to Sonoma in Northern California and stayed there. And uh, they signed with CBS, uh, CBS Sony, in, um, and then albums were released in Japan and America. So my first album was a was a uh, cassette release. The second one was supposed to come out triple format. We got like four albums in, and all of a sudden the deal wasn't happening. There wasn't a lot of money spent on promo. And these things weren't going off the shelf as quickly as they thought they would. So my second album, Rays, uh, was released in Japan and in America, in America on cassette and in Japan on, on CD. Yeah. And so some of the challenges, I think, and I want to show, we'll put some graphics up, but I want to show some of this uh, to the camera here. Which album is this that I'm holding up? Well, this is my uh, fourth LP, my my second individual uh, release, and it was recorded in uh, 1992. It's the High Priestess. High Priestess, yes. yes. Amazing. And I'm going to show, we're, we'll put graphics up here, but I want to show, man, look at this. This is like Disraeli gears here. What's the- <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's actually, it was a promo photo for a concert that was being done and on the Big Island, uh, close to Kilauea Volcano, I had an artistic residency there, and um, and did a little show at the end of the program. Uh, and the myth I was working on at the time was Pele and Hiiaka, 
So extrapolating uh, themes and, and, and musics from the, from the volcano. This is amazing. And this is a double LP. Yes, this was, uh, there, there was um, record producer Roger Bong of Aloha Got Soul uh, had, was a record collector, found uh, Ray's actually online, uh, and, and called me up and asked who had the rights for Ray's. I said, oh, that's long gone by. It's uh, <laughs> not, not published, no rights. It's like no copies. I, you know, I have a couple of, but I'm not going to let them go. Right. And, uh, and we got to talking and explored the library. And he decided that, um, that he would re-release a lot of the material. So this was 2017 was this double LP Is was that right? put together. Yes. Holy cow, just recently then. And we're talking Asian, Arabic, African influences. This is amazing. Now this looks like, um, you know, with Pete Townsend's synthesizer thing, there's a picture of you out back here. I don't know if the camera can pick that up, but yeah, that's sort of a, a little stage shot of some of the popular gear at the mo at the time. There's yeah. a, I think that's a Cork Poly Six behind me, and a and a, and a reel to reel tape recorder. You'll notice there's no wires connecting that, so it's definitely staged. <laughs> and that's a big board, right? Yeah, there's or a not so big board. Oh, so what do you got there? I think it, that might be the synthesizer. What's this under here? Oh no, that's just a table. Oh, that's a table. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. That looked like sorry. a mixing board there yeah. for a moment. So, uh, what year was this originally put out? Jeez, uh, the the old this album, the collection uh, itself was released uh, February of 2017. Yeah. But this looks like this looks like eighty two. But the original this music eighty two, eighty four. Um, yeah. yeah, in the early, mostly through the early eighty and yeah. through the eighties and early nineties. It was amazing. What what was happening for you, just personally, professionally, when you started putting out these albums? Jeez, is... it was life in Hawaii and uh, trying to trying to make a living as, as a musician. It's a freelance musician in Honolulu and to support that I drove taxi I did after school care I did a lot of different kinds of things and was relentless around living in Hawaii and being a music maker part of what I did is I was in the Honolulu Symphony as a contract player for eight seasons was a dance accompanist for the local university over there for several years um, you know I did I would do two, one or two shows a month and actually kept that going just for years. So I, I jokingly said I had like a, a, a difficult listening audience that would show up for between 50 and 75 people at a time for most anything I did. That's pretty good. And then there, were, there was a collection of us that actually did that music making. Okay. Um, worked with Kit Ebersbach, who is a, the, the grand poobah of alternative music making in Honolulu. Still has a studio, Pacific Music Productions, in Honolulu. Um, and has recently been prevented by Roger Bong and who's who's Aloha Got Soul is continuing to put out albums that are I how does the it has a specific mission of of music not just there's a big Hawaiian music scene in Hawaii but there's also a lot of different kinds of musics that come from Hawaii and the beauty that is Hawaii mm. so he's devoted his label to finding old gems and, and people that didn't get as much exposure. So I think I fall into that category. That's really awesome. And and this album here, we'll put up a graphic as well. Tell me about this album. This, this album uh, was picked up by uh, Jeremy Grant of Origin Peoples. And he'd actually come to the album release party 
uh, for the 2017 album and decided that he'd like to do something unique and different. So it, it took us a couple years, and uh, the disc one is primarily my own work and some some new and some un, and some older unreleased items. And then the second uh, disc of this work, there's um, stems taken from an ambient piece of mine handed to a few producers who created their own impressions of of the sounds that that were coming from my library. So it's kind of a, it's a it's a very adventuresome uh, work, and, and it's actually doing quite well. It's a That's lovely awesome. album. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's called Talisman, and folks can pick it up. Where can folks pick this up, Bob? Well, uh, you can go to your local record store and order it, or you can go to my Bandcamp site and and just uh, and order it through there. Okay. Somehow, somewhere, the music, the spirituality, all somewhat somehow led to therapy for you yes talk about that's another road uh <laughs> well that that i think that i don't know how do i con how do i contextualize that so in 1991 i decided to dissolve my first marriage which was uh lasted 13 years and and it gave me my first and second uh children and 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 i also needed to come up with child support so that's when I decided to go into mental health. Okay. So it was about the only thing I was equipped for. And uh, so so what I did was I went out and got a job in social service agency, uh, Hawaii Family Support Agency. Okay. And before too long, I was in my, my contemporaries that all had their master's degrees and were supervisors. And I got invited to this. The, the 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 deal with the devil is if I went to back to grad school they'd triple my salary and I said okay I'll find a grad school right. and um and then it was then then we're off to the races yeah and and where was that for you so I went to grad school when I was in still living in Honolulu and I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute okay. and out of Santa Barbara yeah and and certainly the music and the spirituality certainly informs your work and your practice right well yes and and the thing about pacifica is a very uh jungian depth oriented institution and and very much akin to the the way that i would make music was to, was very much to explore myths and archetypes and there, of course, there was a whole psychology around that yeah. that had been developed since the, the early days of uh, of, of uh, Freud and Jung, okay. and the object relation theories that come out of that. And so that's pretty much the tradition that I sat in as a as my listening stance. And I went from doing shows for X number of people to having the the archetypes actually walk into the office. And so, as the work of James Hillman suggests, that that people come in at their Various levels of acornness, you know, moving towards whatever oakness that they're they're to become. I love that. So yeah. there, there, there was a the, the thread of continuity is in my head and in my heart, though it's sort of like mental health, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Has had that ever been um, something that crossed your mind? Of hey, maybe do this, or had you? Can I ask? Had you already had you done any of your own therapy to say? Because that's how I got into well, this. Well, that like, is that is true. Through the time of my divorce and issues with my first marriage, I did start going to therapy. I stopped the couples therapy because I was pretty much the identified patient and 
And then, but then I went back to that therapist a few months later and did some real work. And it was Fritz Frischel. He was a Jungian based pastoral therapist. Is that right? Yeah. So he would listen to me rant and rave and then suggest, well, this sounds like this. Or you might want to give this a look at or read this. And I remember working with him and very much like trying to figure out what career I was going to be able to engage in going forward. And I thought, I could do what Fritz is doing, right? Right. You know, <laughs> and, and then and then I then I did pursue it, you know, and and got again to Pacifica Graduate Institute, and it's a lovely school, and um, and it's just one of the crown jewels of of Jungian thinking in in, in America, mm. and it's and it's quite and there's a host of people that have gone there, and I have colleagues here in Portland have gone to Pacifica Graduate Institute. Amazing. And did you get into the whole mythopoetic, uh, you know, Bob Moyers, uh, Robert Bly stuff? You know, I, I didn't have a firsthand experience of that, but I got exposed to it through the works that they were doing and the teachings and and studying Iron John and those, those different books. I mean, that they certainly all have places on my bookshelf. The only person I ever really met was that James Hilman was an adjunct faculty member at Pacifica at the time. Okay, and um, so I did have, and, and Pacifica would bring this sort of rock stars of depth psychotherapy uh, to their, to the monthly seminars that, that we would, uh, that, that they would put on. So for a period of a couple of years, I got to see like tw- exposed to 20 different, Sort of like I said, stars of the of the depth psychology movement. Yeah, were you still doing your music during this time of study, or did you just say kind of putting this on hold? I've given up sort of the dream of whatever that was. Yeah, well, that I was pedal to the metal for music making like through '92, and I had a in 1992 I went to Seville and played at the Universal Expo. Uh, it was a six month uh, fair that accompanied the. The Olympics were in Barcelona in 92, and then in Seville was the Universal Expo. So I had contacted uh, music, uh, I contacted funding artists on the East Coast and asked them sort of what was going on and found out that that this pavilion was being built in in Seville and then applied to be able to go and play for a couple of weeks and, uh, and got accepted. Great. And then there was, a, I created some buzz in Hawaii. And so I went for two weeks. I took two weeks off, went to Portugal. And then uh, a sort of a, a Hawaii contingent came to Seville. There was about 35 of us. And we sort of took over the stage at the pavilion, stayed at Marone Air Base uh, outside Seville. And that was, that was my... Uh, I don't know what was the question. All of a sudden, I'm in Seville and remember, remembering the expo. We were talking about: Did you give up the music? Clearly, you didn't give no, up. No, I didn't give up the yeah, music. It was, was uh, and and that was so. That was '92, and and the prize of that was that's where I met my current my wife Sandra, and so I met this main girl in Spain and asked her to come to Hawaii, and we lived there for five years, and. The thing that I didn't have available was anybody to tell me that Maine girls always come home. So I didn't have a reference point. So so we lived together for five years in Hawaii, and then we came back to Portland ostensibly to help her mother, who had uh, had a cancer diagnosis. She didn't live very long, but we, we did engineer a move uh, relocating to Portland, Maine. 
Yeah, I was sitting here a few minutes ago wondering, you know, talking about Hawaii, just imagining being here, uh, being there. And I said it had to be about a girl uh, as far as why you girl. moved to Maine. Right? It, was a, it was a girl. I had, I had not been to Portland, Maine. But through, uh, through our uh, early, early part of our relationship, we visited Portland, Maine several times. And I, was, I became quite taken with the place. Sure. Yeah. Beautiful place. It's a lovely right. place. Yeah. 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 It's a little different than Hawaii, especially right now. We're, we're filming this and recording it in December of 2019. Yes. So. Well, it's different and not different. I mean, there, there's a lot. There's a real, both of the places have real ocean culture going on. Sure. And, uh, and I knew a fellow in Hawaii who grew up in New Hampshire. And he said that, and he goes, well, you're not going to last, uh, you're not going to last long until you're going to be in the water there. So I said, no, I'm not going to go surfing in, in Maine, but it was about five years into my stay here. And I had a lot of wetsuits and a couple of surfboards. Is that and, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even in the winter? Even in the winter. Is that right? Year long, I, yeah. I hear about folks doing that. That's uh, good for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say about that. So when when was it that you and I connected? I know it was mid, early to mid-90s, maybe? Probably, well, so 97 is I moved here, and, and uh, my first job was with the, uh, the recovery center. Yeah. So that was in... Uh, 1997. Right. So I think a couple of years into that was when I met you and, and you were working in the same institution. Yes. And right. you were doing, I had started out doing inpatient work. Yeah. And then I think I met you when you were engaged in the outpatient part of the program. Yeah. And I was sort of always per diem or part time. Yeah. So I was, you know, floating around everywhere and you were one of the, you were one of the mainstay I, regulars. I was a mainstay regular. I, I worked with the, the great Dr. Evans for four years there, yes. 97 through 2001. Yeah. And you survived it. So <laughs> <laughs> how did your music, spirituality inform your practice there? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so when I came to when I came to Portland, Maine, I didn't really play. Um, I sp spent a lot of energy uh, putting myself out there. It's really a big fish in a small pond of Honolulu. And back in the day, in the latter '90s, you would introduce yourself through the packet. So I had like the the Manila envelope full of promo material. And the only place in town that seemed like they would be able to host what it was that I did was the Museum of Art. So I took a packet to the Museum of Art. Followed up with a couple of phone calls and no callbacks. And I figured, I don't have the energy to do this again. And so my studio stayed up in the bedroom and, and I kept doing com composition now and again. But I didn't do any performing uh, till several years later. There was an individual, uh, um, a shook who you might know. I've heard. Yes, I think I've met him once yeah, or twice. And, yeah. and so he, I had gone to... Uh, a Sufi dancing thing that it was happening in town and quite actually just made me homesick for the good old days. Yeah. Uh, so I went a few times. Uh, Elaine was the leader at the time. I think she just gave up the yoke of that just recently. But there was, so for that, I took my flute and my drum. And so there was this fellow who shook, knew that I played and started inviting me to different sessions that he was establishing where, uh, where Kirtan was being played. And so he was, so people would come without a percussionist or an, an accompanist and say, and he would say, what well, do you want a percussionist? And so he was doing his own Kurtan Walla thing at the time and then hosting other bands. And that was really my, my introduction into it. 
and percussionist for you with this, are you playing tablas? Uh, no, I'm doing more African-based instruments. Okay. So the guys with the tablas, they totally get scared when I show up. I've got this 15-inch King Jimbe, which uh, one thump I could drown out the whole of everybody. And uh, But I play it very delicately. I have a very delicate touch. So I use... So it's all hand percussion. Okay. So my so I'll so play this over there. Yep, that's yep. Okay, got it. That yeah. looks like about a twelve inch. So I have a king djembe yeah. that I picked up actually in the, the Senegalese pavilion wow. in nineteen ninety two, and it's been reheaded once, and uh, it's a lovely instrument. Amazing. So I play with that on my right side, and I have a a a dumbik in my lap, and I have a frame drum that I'll bring oh. up now and again, oh. and um, but then I also play flute and clarinet, okay. and so yeah. whatever. Whatever it calls for, I'm like the, I'm kind of the the the, the facility player. Yes, you know. Yeah. In fact, I love it when there's a tabla player because then I don't have to play all the time. Right. I do my best work when other percussionists are are, yes. are, are coming along. Yeah. They they get busy. They get it. very busy. Right. And yeah. then and then the the uh, the energy flow for kirtan is usually starts out very quiet, and then it will build and and then the tempo will rise. And as that. And as the, the flute gets more silly because it's getting loud, I'll put the flute down and then jump over to the percussion and then often end with the flute again. Nice. So it can be just me and a walla or me as a, as a compliment of a whole big band. Depends on, you know, the, the, the audience and the, the meeting time and the, for, the yeah. format. So you're, you're kind of your whole orchestra in and of itself, it sounds like. That. Yeah, I remember being a clarinet player in, in, uh, in high school and I'd be the first one out of there. So now I'm like, you know, it's, it's he who dies with the most toys wins. I've seen you see you're doing pretty well here. <laughs> I've got a few. Like, very, very grateful about yeah. that. Um, tell me a little bit about when you are when you are composing mm. and arranging on your own. Yes. How? What's your process? How do you even? Because like this. Uh, I can hit some drums, but I can't sit down and go, I'm going to write this stuff and like make some music out of the thin air. How do you do that? Well, I, I think of it as like a, the storytelling tradition that, that me as a, as a one man band, uh, what I would do is I'd set up my gear. I would play in the, through the mid eighties. I did a lot of like playing in, in malls and large outdoor spaces, uh, places where you wouldn't find this kind of music the sound is actually equivalent to, it sounds like Vangelis or Yanni, but there's no orchestra around me. It's just me, the clever machines, a go button, and I start playing flute or piano along with it. Um, but the, the glue for those experiences was storytelling. So oftentimes, when compositionally, I'd find a story and like offer a soundtrack to it. So there's uh, myths like Pan, uh, the... Uh, uh, I don't know, my mind's kind of reeling with the different ones. So there's Pan, there's the, the, the Pele and the Snow Goddesses, um, the, the Magician. Uh, so different, different archetypes of consciousness. And then I would tell a little snippet story about it and then, and, play, and then play the music. And then that would be pretty much the show itself. Uh, so when you're, when you're creating this, though, and you're, you're coming up with it, do you... you use your spirituality do you do any sort of meditation to get in that space and then the stuff just starts getting created you know it's 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 a lot more organic it's i would think of it as kind of an itch so that there was there would be uh so so the things that i'm reading or things that i'm exploring i'm very curious about world cultures and world religions so i'd find a story and it would sort of begin to work on me and then i'd figure out a, a way to sort of 
put that story into song. It's all instrumental work, by the way. Yes. Um, so it's pretty free, pretty free and open. Sure. I mean, now and again, I'd have an instrument that that would sound a certain way, and I'd want to include an instrument. Uh, but, but moreover, it would be informed by by the story itself. Can you say more about for for folks who know or don't know the archetypes? Because the stuff that's coming up in my head is the uh, Robert Johnson, the the King Warrior, Magician oh, Lover. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Those I mean, kind of archetypes. so if a, a good sort of exposure to the archetypes is like the major arcana of the tarot, and so they start out with the fool, the uh, the the high priestess, the magician, and then as it goes up through a through a chorus of twenty one different cards, those are sort of the Western man's or the Occidental archetypes. Um, one of the great archetypal myths is like the uh, the Grail myth, mm-hmm. and so we we have we have these myths that inform us. Now, there's the here's a slippery topic: the psychoid nature of the archetype. So Jung suggests that on the in the it goes from ultraviolet down to the to the red ray. Uh, the ultraviolet aspect of the archetype is very ephemeral, so um, it's it's like intangible. But the but the red ray or that part of the archetype that has that that manifests is sort of intersects our 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 consciousness here in an everyday kind of way. Uh, one example I like to use is that we have the archetype of the family. So whatever the word family draws up in you is largely based upon your experience of the family. But, fa- but when we move into the individual experience of the family, the ephemeral one is, is, is like family, your idea of it. So what have we got? We've got mom, dad, 2.2 kids, a two-car garage, a white picket fence. So there's like that, that, that diamond or that, that, that pattern that informs the archetype of family. Now, what does your family look like? What does my family look like? It's different. Yeah. So the red ray, or that which is like intersecting our reality, is, is the sort of on-the-ground aspects of this archetypal consciousness. And so in archetypal psychology, we, we can stru- see what informs us, what's drawing us, what's leading us, and it's usually like some kind of a, some kind of a, it's often an amalgam. There's a joke that my one of my lead professors would say: "If it's not one thing, it's your mother." <laughs> now, so that speaks to, to, to the, the two major complexes: <laughs> it's either your father or it's your mother. You know, but so so we have our complexes based upon how we intersect with the archetypes. The archetypes are sort of it's almost like the the carrot in front of the donkey. You know, it's like I'm moving through life, and these are the things that are the apple of my eye, and. And so that's just kind of like I said, organically, it's like an itch. Yeah. So I remember one time I was working on the story. So I'll give you one that's actually a piece of music. Okay. So I was, I read uh, Tom Robbins' Jitterbug Perfume. Okay. He's exploring the archetype of Pan. And uh, if any people don't know Pan, it is such a lovely introduction to archetypes. It's a lovely work. And now while I was working on Pan, I started playing some Pan pipes. I had a little, a, uh, a double ocarina sounded very much like a Pan type of instrument. Um, and I'm working on a, a piece of music that developed over time, and it's called uh, Ecstasy. And it was released on on The Magician, um, my first independent release. And... And it explores the idea of, of so in the when serfs and vassals in the Middle Ages, you could if you could be free for a year and a day, 
you could like leave the fiefdom for a year and a day, you had your freedom. Mm-hmm. So how come everybody didn't run off into the woods? Right. Well, Pan was in the woods, this animistic deity. You did not want to be running into Pan without a, without a guest card. Yeah. And so, so the, this piece actually starts out very slowly and it has some uh, uh, sort of Philip Glass arpeggiation in there. And then halfway through... It's sort of like you open the, the 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 shrubs and you see Pan in all of his pagan glory and the and the and the the the, uh, the 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 maidens in the pool and they're having a, a quite the yeah. Dionysian party there and uh, and so this music was was formed around that. Now a surprising incident when I was working on that is that I had a fellow from Maui come and knock on my door and I do not know this guy's name. But he reeked of patchouli, and I swear to God, there was thick hair on his toes. And, <laughs> and so, so that's an interesting thing with archetypes of conscious is that the, is that the unconscious begins to participate. Yeah. And so it's almost like you're getting, you're getting notes sent to you from the unconscious. And, right. so there's, and that's also considered the, the red ray or that, that physical aspect of an archetype. How do you use this? How does it inform you in your practice today with therapy? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, so, so let me think. So back when I, in the early days of having a teacher, so, so my, my own spiritual guide is uh, Hugo Valdez. Yaksan, he was given the name Hayuban Yaksan by uh, Pirvalai and Nayakon. Um, and so I consider him my spiritual teacher. Now, in that, in that work, and now there's, there's Sufism is a very live tradition in the East and the West. Um, and as you, as you do the studies, you study the Gothas, you study the Quran, you basically go up the chain so that uh, in that work you become a sheikh or a sheikha um, and, you, and you teach others through the, through the training. Now, my teacher was, he had uh, started another couple, he was Spanish-speaking, uh, born and raised in Argentina. He started groups in Chile and uh, also in Spain. But he was, he said, at one point, he suggested that we needed to take our spiritual work and put it into the community. That we were really good at, at doing, you know, at making dances and kind of a, a curtain experience, if mm-hmm. you would. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the so he died of uh, complications of AIDS in 1993. So technically, I'm uh, a spiritual orphan, and though I was courted in that tradition uh, by by a, a Jirari, uh sheikha and asked if I wanted to pretty much you know elope with with the new teacher, and I said no, thank you. I, I I'm comfortable being a spiritual orphan, but 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 it's. So the, the, I guess the punchline is, is that many people would become shake shakers and, and leaders of the dance. And, but a lot of people from our group became psychotherapists and psychiatrists. Interesting. And, and, and Yaksan was very clear. He said, don't, don't stand between an individual and their experience of God. So it's given a, a little alternative viewpoint of the guru tradition. Yeah. He's saying there's a lot of karma in the guru tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so, he, so through his, his guidance, I think there are a lot of us didn't, didn't take up the yoke of gurus or spiritual teachers in that way, which is I don't have anything against that. That's mm-hmm. very lovely. And in fact, I kind of still chase it around, mm-hmm. so to speak. But my own personal work has is, is been found in, uh, doing psychotherapy. And so... 
and so I feel like that there there's it's a lot more it's a lot more hidden, so to speak, is that people come and they do one hour a week or an every hour a couple of weeks. But in terms of where it goes in a spiritual practice that, that has for me the seeds in the in the in the Sufi work. Yeah. Now the, the the Sufi work itself, uh, the teacher will take the ninety nine names of God and will use these these phrases as cornerstones of spiritual work. So say say you're very meek and you're and you're and you're humble and you can't get out of your own way. So then uh, a a, a wazifa that represents courage would be something that you would say. Mm. Um, and so you would amplify courage as a way to sort of balance the personality. So that's very much the way I think of psychotherapy, is that we are, 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 everybody's treatment plan at the end of it has able to engage in loving relationship. Right. But beyond that, it's very much more specific, because we identify the deficits and the needs, and then we amplify the, the, uh, the, the e- with ego strength, the, the the capacity to live more wholly in the world as an individuated human, and for the un, uninitiated as myself, the wasifa is the treatment plan. Is that uh... well, the wasifa is actually the one of the ninety nine names of God, ah, okay. and uh, one of the opening phrases is uh, Bismillah, Bismillah, Rahim. So Rahman is most merciful, Rahim is most compassionate. So there you've got the first three names of God: Allah, Rahman, Rahim. Mm-hmm. Got it. Beautiful. Yeah. It is very. It is very it. beautiful yeah. language. So, you're, but you're thinking about you're thinking in this way with working with people. Of yes. When they come in and they might be, whatever, timid, anxious, you are helping them find their own inner courage. Yes, very much as the way, that, and they're informing me through yeah. conversation as to what their desires and their their hopes and dreams are, and then. Through conversation, it's an an insight because it is a it is a verbal tradition, and um, every I get I get a sense of what it is that they're that they're moving toward. I don't I don't know what it is exactly, but but I just sit and listen. They'll tell they tell me. So there's a lot of information gathering in the first session, and by the third session, we usually have a sense of where we're going and and what the needs are, and. And everybody has their own reason to go to therapy. It's not a one size fits all. Sure. And it's certainly not uh, the food's not that good where I work, you know. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> there's something bringing people in. Right. And I and I think a big part of it is is a, is a form to be seen and to be and to be heard. Yeah. Which I think that that we all have that. So in the in the Sufi tradition, it's suggested that God made man to so that he could experience himself. Now, there's a lot of he's there, you know, and, uh, and, and, and the Jungian tradition itself is very binary. There's, a, there's a, the male, the female, there's the conscious and the unconscious, and there's this side and the other side. So even with Jung's parentage, I mean, his, his uh, father was a Lutheran minister, his mother a table-tapping witch. Now, I don't think it's, I haven't seen it written just like that. Those are my <laughs> words, not theirs. But reconciling those two things within himself and then identifying practices to uh, allow the unconscious to become more conscious. Yeah, I mean, clearly from everything that we've talked about so far, makes sense that you went, you know, for folks who don't know what Jungian is, it's based out of Carl Jung. Yeah, the work of Carl Jung. Yeah, and that's a, that is a very specific type of therapy. You know, clearly with your spirituality and your music, you didn't just go 
all cognitive behavioral, right? You didn't go the Skinner black box, right? No, well, <laughs> I, no I didn't. In fact, uh, it, when I was in ear training in, in, in college, I refused to go in and do ear training because it was, it was you actually using the, the Skinner red box kind of forum, right? you know? Yeah. It's like you get the interval, you guess, you guess right, or you hear it, you get it wrong, you get it, mm. you know? It's like, oh, it used to be so painful. Yeah. And I probably don't hear as well as I could just because of my resistance around that, around that work. But yeah, it's uh, but, and, but, but cognitive behavioral therapy is great. I mean, sure. so my, my linchpin for therapy is like say solution focused depth oriented psychology, which is a bit of an oxymoron. I mean, so the solution focus part is like, I'll get, I'll get folks that will come and they, they are crying on their way to work and their doctor gives them an antidepressant. And as soon as the, symptoms go away they are out of there now there are other folks that that have a sort of a more of a large s uh, a, di a different kind of view of what therapy is and they're looking to you know for their life's dream so that so that's the the depth work itself right. and so solution focused depth oriented is you know they, they can catch everybody with that net so uh, to speak and both can live congruently right yeah, absolutely so, yes I, I love your thing because i also believe this too if the end goal is meaningful loving relationships yeah. right and i i throw in meaningful purpose in there as yes. well right um how do we relate that to you know the storytelling the myths or very similar, the stories that we tell ourselves. Yes. What, what are some of those things that you see folks that's getting in the way of meaningful, loving relationships and purpose? Well, you know, that's, that's a very good question. And so, and, and not to, so, so I often say, you know, so I don't do cognitive behavioral therapy. However, I will not let an overinflated thought distortion move around the room unchecked. So... <laughs> So it's often like the, the busy work of the therapy is working these thought distortions, which I think are very natural, by sure. the way, yes. that, that when too many fire engines are in the intersection, I'm going to start catastrophizing, generalizing, and how do I make all this terror stop? Now, those are, but there's a way of like moving into that language. It's like, well, is that true? How true is it? How often is it true? So as we start to deconstruct where the brain goes, just because we're under pressure, then we can relieve, not only relieve some of the pressure, but develop some insight around how our relationships really work or how our careers are going, the different things that, that we meet in this life. Yeah. I mean, we're all doing the best job we can, I sure. believe. And we're all playing the hand that we're dealt. That's right. And in terms of what people come with their various needs for psychotherapy, I have that germ of curiosity. I want to know how it's going to come out. Right. You, know? right. you want to know what the end of the story yeah. is going to be, right? And my, and my own spiritual advisor, he said that samadhi is the art of perfect conversation. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. So samadhi is the Hindu word for at-one-ment. Mm -hmm. Now perfect conversation. Now this is, this is different than the sort of what I call barroom conversation where, where I'm listening to you tell a story your story is reminding me of a story I really need to tell. And as soon as you take a breath, I'm telling that story. So the, what's going on in the therapeutic container is there's one story that's the important story. And it's the, it's the analysis or the person coming for therapy. Right. And then 
if, if I get something triggered, the, the important question, is this about me? If it's about me, then I just keep that to myself. But if I think that there's something that's happened in my life that has relevance to the story, then, then I would share that after an invitation. Yeah. You know? right. So I'm, otherwise, I would just stand, just be in my room telling my story all the time. Right. Exactly. And you could have the bar in there as well, right? So. <laughs> you could have the bar as well. But but with the training, and I don't know I'm, your relationship to your training, I don't know if I ever listened to anybody totally until I took the training. You know, uh, in the, and in the words of, of, uh, of the who, you know where to put the cork. Right. So, so I right. sit there and, and just shut myself up and sure. listen, and, and then the hopes, desires, and dreams of the, of the other is that that's what comes forward. And then my work is to help them get to where they, they feel like they need to go. Do you see that as a spiritual process? No, oh, I absolutely do. Yeah. I do see it as a spiritual process. Yeah. And then in that sense, you know, in Sufism itself, there's, there is no God except for God. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and when I take histories, I, I do ask a very blunt question. I go, thoughts on God? That's my favorite question. They're like, so they'll answer with their church life or one thing or another. I said, no, I didn't ask about didn't ask about your church, you know, but, and everybody has a little different experience. Yeah. And I do love the, the, the devout atheists who say, I do not believe in God. And I say, well, that's very close to what I believe. I believe that there's nothing that isn't God. Ah. So, so it's a very, very close to yes, one another. Right. Absolutely. And just really honoring whatever story somebody is coming in with. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, it's, it's all pretty contiguous. One step has led to another and it just keeps unfolding. Um, I mean, current, so I think current thinking for me right now is I wonder how it's all going to end up. Right. I mean, having turned 66, mm. not being in the, the 1% club. So I don't think I'm going to retire soon, but my social security is certainly augmenting my practice. And I, and I just love the fact that I have found a, a profession where I don't have to retire as long as I can stay awake in the chair That's right. that, and, and stay current, you know, then, then I'll probably remain relevant. Yep. I, I think that's an amazing thought too, because I think about that sometimes too. We were uh, some friends and I were just talking about that a, a few weeks ago. Of like, you know, we all had a beginning of our story, mm. and we're sort of in the middle of whatever that story is. I wonder how it's going to end, right? Do you think about? I mean, death. Do you I think? I do think about death yeah. now uh, quite a lot. I mean, one of the one thing I should not just give lip service to, but it does inform my own, I mean, so I don't know how, I got four stories going at the same time here. So when I got out of grad school, I felt like I got like a Cadillac training. And I thought, but what if I meet a depressed person? What if they're suicidal? You know, this is, I, I had like no ashes work in the, in the, in the sense of the Iron John story. And so what I did is I sought out very difficult work environments. So that was, the recovery center was the first one. Then I started doing crisis work. That was really the second one. Uh, I did some case management supervisions, therapy supervision, Um, but always very, a sense of, that that death was something I needed to become more familiar with. Um, I, I keep actually a skull strategically placed in my office behind the person who's speaking to me. It's sort of a, a Hamlet prop, yeah. you know, back in the bushes. I have a big sure. giant bush in the corner. Um, but I very much think of death as an ally for me. And, and, and something I do every two, uh, twice a month through Maine Medical Centers, I, am, uh, I facilitate the uh, survivors of suicide loss support group. Mm. 
and it's not a terribly happy bunch. Sure, uh, folks who've lost loved ones to suicide. Yeah, and so death is certainly a, a very hot topic there. And it's a lot of wondering why, and we go through the stages of grief, and mm. you know, it's a lot of holding that goes on sure. there. You know, like other kinds of mental health groups, there's a lot of there's a lot of correction. You know, we want to talk you out of coming. Right. I mean, if you're depressed, try this. Feel happy or stop coming. Right. You know, for, for this for this group, you come as long as it takes. Right. And with that kind of complex grief, whatever you're going through yeah. is where is where you're supposed to be. Sure. And so there's so much love in that environment mm-hmm. of the f- people who come and hold one another. It's very, it's a very tender thing. Sounds very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of states, including Maine, have just recently been passing this assisted suicide. Yes. Uh, I, I may not be saying that right, but um, what are your thoughts and feelings around all of that? I think it needs to be cautiously applied. Mm. You know, there's, uh, I mean, was it Kevorkian who like did it as a, a sort of an underground movement, woke the whole system up. Right. But um, people have been taking their own lives consciously for a very long time. I mean, there were the Stoics of Greek, mm. and it was a way of challenging the, uh, the gods rather than allowing the gods to take you when they want. You, you choose when you want to go. Yeah. You know, so... I, that's not really what the current movement is about. It, but there is so much suffering that your quality of life is just none. Right. Then and and maybe it is time to go. Right. Now my sense is is that's been happening on the down low for a long time. And sure. you go to hospice, they hand you the morphine pump and say, right. "Go for it," and then pump, 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 and, and you're gone. Sure. Now having to hit the legislature and talk out loud about the rules and that sorts of thing. That's well, it's going to take a lot of work right. to come up with a, with a game plan that works for everybody. Right. Yeah, it seems to me like that needs to be uh, independently verified by a few different folks at the time. Yeah. So that, you know, people don't abuse Well, and that, that hit our politics a number of years ago when they're talking about, you know, one-payer health care. At least it's not shown up in the current cycle. But there was this idea that there would be death panels. Right. You know, it's like, right. well, we're not going to give you your Medicare because... You know, we're going to give you this procedure because you're almost dead, so right. we'll just let you go. Right. You know, so that's that's quite frightening. Right, absolutely. So we would certainly want to avoid that end of things. No question. Right, no question. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about, the you know, especially the story, wonder what the end of the story will be. And today I'm not planning on uh, doing anything voluntarily, but it just it's that whole mystery. Well, and, and I can tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly in the last third of my life, if we're basing it on 99, and, and, and my own secret thought is that when I'm pulling out the air conditioners from the attic and walking backwards down the steps, I'm thinking, is this when I die? You know? <laughs> but, right. So I don't know that I'll be able to catch the moment. We'll see. Right. I mean, not right. to be, my daughter no, accuses I, me of being morbid. Yeah, yeah. I just happen to be 66. Right, I'm right. not morbid. Sure. You know, I've, been, right. I've been granted a long life. And, right. And I am curious about sure. how it's all going to end up. These are some existential uh, wonderings that we have, right? It's yes, a, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and in my own tale of music, I could have never seen retrospective albums in my future. Right. You know, I sort of an acquired taste and didn't do thousands of pieces of work. And, but it's all, it all fits in. It's all unfolding quite nicely. With whatever time we all have left, what's the music you want to keep making? What's uh, any goals or dreams musically for you? Well, th- there are actually. There's so uh, when I started performing this work again, I was like, "How am I going to do it?" Because 
the machines were like 20 to 30 years old. I didn't know how I was going to do it. Well, it turns out that my gear all still worked. Great. And so how I so what I my most recent performances are 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 actually the work that I've been performing all along only better because it's like there's a um software that's largely allowed me to just sample it and then remix it and then I just all held in the computer. Back in the day we used to carry tons of gear around now it's just a a laptop and whatever you need to join to join the band. Right. And uh but I have been listening to a lot of future garage music. It's uh, Ableton is, is pretty much the software of choice. And there's uh, 20 and 30-something producers all over the world are speaking this language. Largely found uh, on SoundCloud. You can fish around. And, and, I've, uh, and I'm making friends in, uh, in uh, Latvia, Siberia, Russia, uh, Texas, Oklahoma. Man. So that, that's where my ears are going right now. And that's... That, and that's not changed. I'm always, I mean, they, there's a statistic out there, uh, or is it an anecdote? I don't know. It's, uh, but they suggest that your musical tastes fuse about the age of 30. And I do know people that always are listening to the Grateful Dead, because that's what they did at 30. Well, mine didn't fuse. Yeah. It just keeps on going. Right. So yeah. right now, future garage music is up. And, uh, and what is future garage music? I don't even know what that is. It's a lot of, synth- it's a lot of synthetic music okay. with, some, uh, with a lot of voice, uh, a lot of DIY kind of recording studios, but then mixes of, uh, it's the most beautiful synthesis you've ever heard. And it's, very, and it's kind of the three to five minute song form where they'll, they'll introduce, there'll be the thematic material goes over the first half, it, it, it softens up and then comes back in for the, for the coda section. And it's, it's amazing how similar it all is, yeah. uh, despite it coming from all over the world. So I would challenge any listener. And, and I do offer folks, I mean, I'm thinking of the anxious people in my practice. I say, you know, and this is where the music therapy comes in. Yes. You know, the, once upon a time, I thought I'd be a music, ther- music therapist. Okay. They're sort of the underlings of the treatment team. I didn't get any respect when I was talking about <laughs> clinical impressions as a music therapist. So, so now I use music therapy sparingly, but I can tell you that the right music that that you self-selected yes. and played at appropriate times can certainly get a little bit of the epinephrine moving along and sort of, you know, it's as good as Prozac only if, right. if well applied. And um, and listening to the, listening to this kind of music can be very can be very uplifting, or can, music can certainly enhance one's meditation or yes. how they feel about themselves. And so, so give- we'd all develop our own soundtracks. That's yeah. kind of what I'm listening to these days. Well, and you, clearly you've been worldwide for a long time, right? So d- give me a, a track or two for if I'm anxious and I want to calm myself down and give me a track or two of yours from any album that I can put on and help sort of. Well, there's a dreamscape from the night kitchen is uh, something that that started out many years ago as uh, as a background to a buto performance in a Japanese garden in the east-west center in Honolulu. Um, for the re- most recent album release, I re- recorded that anew, and, and it's got sort of a little ostinato pattern in the background, and then some very, very uh, present flute playing that goes on. And it's an uh, improvisational tune, lasts about six minutes. Great. And it's, um, yeah, it's very meditative. That's awesome. 
Yeah, this is great stuff, Bob. Where can folks find you online? If you can tap in Robert Alos Myers and just Google that, stuff will come coughing up that fills about five to six pages. Uh, there's there's a band, Robert Alos Myers.bandcap.com is a place you can find. Uh, you can find me on SoundCloud. Um, my music is available for streaming. Um, it's It's all over the place. This has been a great story, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Bob Myers on the Rock Therapy Show. Thank you, Bob. Dave, thank you. Very cool episode. What did you think about that? We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it. And if you want to watch this interview, there's a video, too. You can check it out on our YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. Until next time, I'm David Ward. Thanks for listening.